Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I do ask that you continue to pray for me this morning. I have a thought on my mind. I want to ask you a question. How do you define success? Most people set out in life to be a success. At a minimum, they set out to be something other than a failure. Nobody says, I'm going to really try to fail at everything I want to do. So usually we have some thoughts in our heads about things we want to do in life, and we want to succeed at them. I imagine if you polled everyone in this room, you would have some thoughts about, well, this is what I'd like to be successful at. I'd like to be successful in a, in a marriage or in a family or in a career or in some other sorts of endeavor, an artistic endeavor. There's any number of things there, but it's important to note that we think about success all the time. And if you're going to think about something you want to be successful in, it's important that you define what the success criteria is, right? If you kind of don't define what success is, you might come to the end of your road and wonder, well, was I ever really successful? Well, I never really defined success, so maybe it's hard to determine whether or not I was successful at something. In my early conversations with Elder Phelan, one of the things that sticks in my mind and will always be in my heart as a special testimony of Elder Phelan's ministry to me was the conversation we had where I'm coming into the church from a slightly different theological background. And in those two traditions, you might say, well, we both believe in TULIP. So aren't we the same, right? Don't we believe the same things? And the answer to that is really no. There's some subtleties, and though they're subtle, they're important in the differences between what some people believe when they say that and others. And Elder Phelan said to me, well, What we have is a successful Savior. And that hit me kind of like a ton of bricks, you know. It confused me at first. It was almost like maybe I felt somewhat like Nicodemus felt when Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It was a little bit of a, okay, what what are we saying here? What is That hit me. It struck me. It was a little disorienting and confusing. But... At times, when you have something said to you that's like that, it's an occasion for you to step back and say, this is something I should ponder more. Why does Elder Phelan say we have a successful Savior? And in comparison to maybe other churches and other forms of belief, the implication is that maybe that Savior is not successful. You see? The question that's before us today is, is Jesus Christ a successful Savior? What did He set out to do? And did he accomplish it? We rebranded our website a while back. We rebranded it to SuccessfulSavior.org. This truth is so central to the Christian faith that I thought this would be a good way to rebrand the website. You know, it's, if you want to tell somebody to, to learn something about your church, it can be hard for them to remember. Well, it's HarmonyPBChurch.org. And they're going to be like, I don't remember that. Maybe they can find it on a Google search. Well, they probably can. But uh, one of the things that I thought was valuable in that is if we said, well, if we buy the domain name SuccessfulSavior.org, that's pretty easy to remember. And it kind of takes advantage of this idea, well, what is it about this successful Savior? What did He set out to do? And did He accomplish it? Right? So I love that thought, and it's kind of been a... um, 
a bit of a focal point for me in my ministry and my preaching, and I appreciate Elder Phelan for putting that thought on my mind. I believe the Lord was in that. How do you define success? Well, hopefully in this sermon today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the successful Savior, what was foretold about Him in the Old Testament, what was retold about Him in the New Testament, and what is still told about Him with His people today. For foretold, let's look at Isaiah 53. It's a very popular passage, and I want to look at it quickly and see what ideas we can pick up out of this. We're going to find out something interesting about the nature of gospel ministry. We're going to find out something about the sin and sacrifice that Christ came to deal with. We're going to learn something about His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His success in this endeavor. Very important if you're going to be promoting a successful Savior. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now that's how Isaiah starts. This is kind of mid-ministry, if you will. He's in his ministry here. He's preaching these things. He's declaring them to people. And he's looking out there and saying, who even believes what I'm telling them? Is there anybody out there who has believed this report? It's kind of astonishing, honestly, that you can preach something so good as a successful Savior. And from a minister's perspective, you might look at it and say, the reaction I see from people in the form of zealous belief does not rise to the level of the quality of this message. Does people even really believe it? Do you believe it today? This is a question that Isaiah asked. And then he goes on to explain this thing that they must believe or should believe. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That tells you that Jesus Christ was not the Mardell Jesus. He was not a gorgeous, angular, Nordic, blue-eyed, wonderful-looking human being. When we see Jesus face to face... As we are promised someday, he is not going to look like Mardell Jesus. I'm telling you that. We know that because he has no form or comeliness. He's not the kind of person in his physical form that you would look at and say, what an attractive person. I would like to be in their presence. I'm drawn to them just based on their sheer physical appearance. You ever think about that? That's actually quite different from the Jesus you see depicted in pictures all throughout time. Now, I'll give the artists a little bit of a, uh, I'll try to throw a mantle of charity over them. You know, they probably are thinking, well, I want to honor Jesus, so I don't want to make him unattractive. Maybe that's the thought that was in their head. I don't know. But I know this much. The Bible says he has no form of comeliness. He's got no physical visage that's going to draw you based on that alone. And I'm telling you, that's very different from the Nordic Jesus we see in almost every depiction out there, right? He looks like a supermodel in those pictures. That's not how Jesus is going to look. And yet he's more beautiful than what we associate with those types of physical images. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's talking about the man, Jesus Christ. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the successful Savior. This doesn't sound like what we would typically define as a success, a public success, right? 
It sounds like a contemptible depiction of Christ, and yet it is the truth. Verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Do you see the healing ministry of Jesus Christ being depicted there? The substitutionary punishment, the office of Christ, where He took your punishment. He took your punishment. This is being written something like 700 years before Christ ever came into the world. That's why some preachers say, this is the gospel according to Isaiah. He's speaking gospel truth some almost 700 years before it ever came to pass. And we see clearly with the New Testament eyes we have a depiction of Christ in these words. So there's a substitutionary death. With His stripes we are healed. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By the way, this is written to God's people. This is written to Israel. God's people, the depiction of God's elect. This is in the Old Testament, but it's a depiction of God's elect when we say for us all. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by the way, all we have gone astray like sheep. Is anyone going to raise their hand and say, not me. I'm not a sinner. The Bible says that's a foolish notion, and I've rarely encountered anyone who's willing to own it. Even people who aren't believers in Jesus Christ typically will say, the things that your Bible calls a sin, I will admit that I have performed some of those actions. So they will admit it at least in that regard. Strangely enough, I believe I can say every person I've ever encountered who has told me they don't sin and are not a sinner is also someone who claims to be a Christian. Now that's a strange occurrence right there. But it is a wrong-headed notion because we've all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And our own way, if you're a fallen person, is the way of sin. It is the way of the flesh. So we're all sinners and this is what it's talking about. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We see New Testament references there in that imagery. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He died as a result of his sacrifice here. He gave up the ghost, is what the Bible said. He laid down his life. So there's the death of Christ. We've got the substitution. We've got the death. Looks like we're building a gospel message here. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. There's that substitution again. And he made his grave with the wicked. Well, there's his burial. Jesus Christ was buried in a rich man's grave. That's attested to in Matthew 27. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. See, there's the aspect of it where Jesus Christ, the sins he bore were not the sins he committed. He never committed any sins, right? He was not a sinner, yet he took on as the perfect sacrifice the sins of his people. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Well, wait a minute. He died in the previous verse. 
How are you going to prolong the days of someone who's dead if they are no longer alive? It's not possible. The prolonging of his days implies and declares the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is an absolute certainty. So we've got the substitution, we've got the death, we've got the burial, and now we've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ all 700 years before any of this occurred. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. A gospel prophecy that includes His death, burial, and resurrection, but it includes more than that. And this is the part we should all be joyful about. He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. Whatever Christ set out to do on that cross, God the Father looked at and He said, I am satisfied with that. I'm satisfied with that work. It is the satisfaction of the matter of sin for all those Jesus Christ represented in His saving office. That's just all there is to it. It's not, I saw the travail of His soul, and then I went and checked with someone to see if they saw the travail of His soul and agree with that and affirm it, and in that instance, I'll be satisfied. That is not what it is. Jesus Christ offered Himself to the Father, and the Father was satisfied. You see that? Christ's work was utterly effectual for His people. Amen. And that is the hope that we have, right? That is the hope that we have. He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. That's a hard shall verse, by the way. We've got to take that one. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. All those for whom Christ bore their iniquities... God is satisfied with what Christ did on their behalf. See that? That's why we talk about a successful Savior. That's why it's so important to us to declare that truth. Now this is retold in the New Testament. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Another very important passage. I've often brought it up when people say, well, what is the gospel? You can ask people, what's the gospel? And you'll get a thousand different answers. A lot of times they're kind of pecking and hunting around the edges of what the gospel is. But here we have Paul telling us this is the gospel. So this is a good place to start if you want to get a core definition of the gospel. And then you can kind of work out in concentric circles from that and add more color and detail on it as you go. Chapter 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Now this is Paul. He's going to tell you the gospel. So however you're going to define the gospel, this should be front and center in the matter which also you have received, and wherein you stand. So this is the Corinthian church. They had heard this and believed it. He's declaring it again. By the way, these people already heard and believed the gospel, and Paul is declaring it to them again. Some people may wonder, we'll come in here and we talk about, well, we're going to get up and preach the gospel today. I know sometimes the carnal mind might say, well, didn't you preach the gospel last Sunday? You're always talking about you preach the gospel. We're going to have Kevin Kennedy come in here. He's going to preach the gospel to us. Well, Paul declared it to them. There was a church formed on that basis, and here he is writing a letter. He's declaring it to him again. We declare these things over and over again. We need the hope that's found in the gospel regularly declared to us. And there's a lot of things in life that you need regularly declared to you, though you may affirm them. You need to hear them over and over again. The, the world will wear away your understanding of things. The world is not a spiritual place, so to speak. The carnal and fleshly influence of this world are constantly washing over you and inclining you, trying to take 
everything that's spiritual away from you and get your mind focused on carnal and fleshly things. And that's why we have to constantly be coming back and reaffirming the gospel. It's very easy to lose sight of this. And it's easy to think, well, I don't need that regular emphasis. I'm a Christian. That's a very dangerous place to be. We all need it. Jesus Christ built the institution known as the church, and He didn't build it for no reason. Like, He didn't have it here just say, well, I think there ought to be a building in every community that kind of commemorates this. No, there's a people who need to be taught and regularly supported by regular instruction from the Word of God. And it's in the same precepts over and over and over again. The Bible talks about the sin which does so easily beset us. If sin is easily besetting, I submit to you it must be easy that we forget the promises of the gospel and the need to follow Jesus Christ. And therefore we need to have those things reinforced. How can we all say, well, sin easily besets me, but my knowledge of the gospel and my understanding and my stability in those things is so solid that I only need to hear the gospel about once every two years. That doesn't make any sense. So Paul is regularly affirming this, and he's affirming it again with these people. And this is the gospel wherein you stand. By which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. This is talking about time salvation. He's not saying like the moment you forget thinking about the gospel, all of a sudden I'm not eternally saved. Okay, I'm at church right now, I'm thinking about the gospel, I'm eternally saved. And I go out and then I start looking at the menu at some restaurant. I'm trying to figure out, do I want fajitas or do I want enchiladas? And I'm not thinking about the gospel. Uh Uh-oh, at this moment with this menu in my hand, I'm not eternally saved because I have now forgotten about the gospel. And I'm thinking about enchiladas. (laughs) That doesn't even make any sense. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the sense in which... You are saved by knowing what Christ did for you. It's what we would call time salvation or your understanding or cognition of what you have in Christ. We regularly get distracted from thinking about spiritual things and you get drawn off that. Maybe you get incredibly worried about some situation in your life and you're not thinking about the hope you have in Christ. And there's a, in a sense, there's kind of a loss of your salvation in that moment. Because you're consumed by the worries of temporal affairs and you're worrying about these things and you're not stepping back and saying, wait a minute, I'm a child of the king. I've got a home in glory. I don't know how all these things down here are going to work out. There's going to be trouble and tribulation and suffering and all that. I'm going to have to deal with that. But I know I've got a hope in Christ. You see, that's a salvation in your life while you're keeping that in mind. And we often don't keep it in mind. So he's not talking about, you've got to remember this at all moments, otherwise you're not eternally saved. That's not what he's talking about at all. That wouldn't even make any sense anyway. By the way, it doesn't say that he shall see the travail of his soul, and then he'll check and see to make sure that you're keeping it in memory, and he'll be satisfied by it. You see that? He saw what Christ did and was satisfied by it. You may be remembering that or not remembering that, experiencing the peace and joy of it, or experiencing the vexation of spirit that comes when you forget all those things in your life. But that doesn't change the fact that God looked at what Christ did and was satisfied by it. You see that? That transaction did not involve you. It involved God, and that's all there was to it. So, if we keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. By the way, that means... The purpose of your belief in this world is for your own personal comfort and the benefit of your life in the here and now. You see that? So it is important. It just doesn't determine where you're going to spend eternity. Verse 3, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Now here it is. Here's the gospel. 
See if you can remember any of this being taught by Isaiah some 700 years before, which we just looked at. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It would do no violence to the meaning here to say, just like Isaiah said back in Isaiah chapter 53, that's the according to the Scriptures part, Christ died for our sins, that substitutionary death that we just saw in the words of Isaiah. And that He was buried... Well, we saw that too. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There it is. Here you have Paul recounting exactly what Isaiah was foretelling. Paul is retelling it. Isaiah was foretelling it. Right? Same story, same gospel truths that deal with the sacrifice for sin, substitutionary death of Christ, the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those things are central. So I'm going to tell you this. If you just take those four elements, there's a substitution for sin, there's death, there's burial, and there's a resurrection, and all those things are according to the Scriptures. If you take any one of those and play around with it, you don't have the gospel. And to the extent that you don't have the gospel, you no longer have the Christian faith. Now you may have something that has a cross on it or a steeple on the building and lots of signs and it may have pictures of Jesus everywhere. But if that institution denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is not Christianity. That is a shocking statement, but it is true. Many churches that you see out there that look as churchy as churches can look, giant cathedrals and fancy stained glass windows and all this sort of stuff, that stuff is great. It is the works of men. It's beautiful to behold. I'll grant you that. But if you don't have a successful Savior, if you don't have a resurrected Jesus Christ, you don't have anything. You have a social club or a cotillion or maybe a do-good society or something, but it is not the Christian faith. Because if you remove the resurrection from it, it's not Christianity anymore. Paul's going to make this case, and I've made it in recent months, I'm going to make it again. We need to be told time and again. By the way, if you ever wondered about, well, you know, they said he rose from the dead. Well, there's a lot of witnesses. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. There were many people who were witnesses of this event. Christian groups who try to get really sophisticated and talk about some spiritual mass hysterical event where people had visions of Jesus after he died. They are not reading the plain testimony of the Bible. If you don't believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't believe what Paul and these 500 and the 12 and Cephas believed about this. That's just all there is to it. I don't even know why you would want to play in the domain of Christianity if you don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, I I guess I do know. You want to have the name of Christ to take away your approach among religious people, but you really just don't want to have anything to do with His bread. You don't want His doctrine. You just want the name and a sheen of Christianity that makes people think you're religious. But if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have anything. Paul says, And last of all, you've seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Can you imagine being a man who at one time persecuted Christians for what they believed, and then God intervenes in your life and says, no, it's not going to be that way. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be preaching. You're going to love these people now. Can you imagine 
how Paul must have felt at times about what he had done in his former life. I believe that's why Paul was able to consider himself the chief of sinners. And I think it's the reason we many times can relate to Paul in how we've acted at times and can feel also the chief of sinners. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. For I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's exactly what's going on today. If you took a map of all the Christian churches in the world and put a, you know, like if you're on Twitter and you're the real deal, you're supposed to have a blue check mark. If you were to consider Christianity to be somewhat like Twitter, and a blue check mark would be the churches that believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you looked at that map a hundred years ago and looked at it today, you'd see a whole lot less blue check marks on the Christian churches today than you saw a hundred years ago. Because they're turning away from this. Churches are turning away from it. By the way, this is a business model. It's a business model when you say, I'm going to shave the resurrection of Jesus Christ off of my Christianity. What does that do? Well, all of a sudden, you've made a bunch of people who otherwise would be appalled at the notion of affirming a resurrected Jesus Christ. You've made them a little bit more accepting of your faith. Well, you know what? They don't believe in that resurrection stuff. They're not those crazy Christians who actually believe Jesus came out of the grave. This is a kinder and gentler form of Christianity that seems more appealing to my carnal heart. Maybe it's just a religion that says we're supposed to be nice to one another, and I believe we can do that. We can do that without having to affirm that Jesus Christ rose out of the grave. It's a marketing ploy. It's a business model that can increase your appeal more broadly among the carnal, among those who have no profession of faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It was going on in Paul's day, and it continues to go on today. But look at what Paul says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ is still in the grave. That is a huge problem for a religion that has major points, one of which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It knocks one of the pillars out from under the church. And the way it's structured, we're going to find from Paul, when that pillar gets knocked down, the whole thing collapses. Verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Look, he's saying if this is not true, we've just been up here lying to you. It's totally bogus. Your faith is in vain. This whole thing is a big show. He admits this, yea, we are found false witnesses of God. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. So that's a... Uh, foretelling in Isaiah and a retelling of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But from our standpoint on a timeline, those things are all in the past. Paul wrote those things a couple thousand years ago. 
Isaiah was maybe 700 years before that or so. So those things are all in the past, but these things are still told. By the way, I just read them to you today. So the Lord's church has been declaring this for a couple of thousand years since the formation of the Lord's New Testament church, but it's still told in another way. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? Do you believe today? Can I look out in this crowd and see among us people who say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as it was told in the Scriptures, just as Paul declared it to us in 1 Corinthians 15. I believe that. There's something in your believing it that we need to take note of because there's a resurrection in your believing it. You ever thought about that? You have to be resurrected from a state of death and trespasses and in sins to a state of life in Christ to be able to believe that spiritual truth. So there's a retelling of it. It's still told today just in the fact that there are people who hear this testimony and they believe it. They give testimony to the fact that they have been risen in regeneration by the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how are you attaching that to the resurrection? I mean, I understand that being born again, there's a coming to life there. I understand all that. Why, why are you associating that with the resurrection? Because the Bible does. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? Well, here we go. We're talking about those of us who believe. How do we believe? How do you believe? Well, I just heard something one day and I decided, well, that sounds good. I'm going to start believing it. Wrong. That may be your experience. Your experience is dead wrong. It's just dead wrong. That means you've got something you can learn here today if that's what you think happened. Who believe according to the working of His mighty power. You believe that is a manifestation of the mighty power of God in your life. The very fact that you believe is proof that God is on His throne and that He's saving His people. His sheep hear His voice. He knows them. And He's not going to lose a single one of them. You see that? But what else does it say about this mighty power that your belief is a manifestation of? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The fact that you believe proves that you were born again by the same power of God that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave. There is a resurrection testimony in this room in the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. The fact that we believe these things proves that we have been resurrected from a state of death and trespasses and in sins. And so it's still going on today. There's still manifestations. The church itself is a manifestation, is it not? But each of us individually have been resurrected in a spiritual sense. We've been given life in Christ and our belief is an evidence of that fact. That is an amazing truth. And we find also that He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's Jesus Christ. He's a successful Savior. He raises every one of His children in this way. 
Every single one of his chosen people are going to be born again. And that is what gives them the faith in God that allows them to hear this, believe it, and be blessed by it. You see that? By the way, if you back up a little bit, it talks about what is the exceeding greatness of his power. In verse 15, he says before that, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now he's talking to gospel converted people. He's talking to a church there. But he's not saying, well, you know, you're born again, so you're good. I guess we're just waiting for the, for the Lord to come back or for death to come, and then we'll be in heaven. There's a lot more that he's got in mind here for these people to be blessed by. He's talking about the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That is gospel instruction in the Lord's New Testament church. That's what he wanted them to have. They had been born again. They have eternal life, but there's more that they can have in this lifetime. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I mean, there's a lot you can gain by being a disciple and being in the Lord's New Testament church and hearing these truths declared. School is in session. Discipleship means you are a learner. And we need to be constantly and regularly reminded of these things because the world strips them out of your mind. It doesn't take long. All of us will be back at the house before too much longer. And before long, your mind will be consumed with, where's the remote? You had it last. Well, no, I gave it to so-and-so. I don't know where it is. Right? Our minds get consumed by simple, ridiculous, carnal things all the time in an instant. And yet, you think you don't need to be constantly reminded of what's found in the Word of God when you have all these forces that are constantly tugging your mind in a thousand different ways. There's something more for you there. But really, we want to be focused on this, and we'll talk about this as we close. Philippians chapter 3. Paul's in prison writing this, which is pretty incredible in and of itself. But look at what he's saying here. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Here we are, we're repeating things again, right? And Paul's saying, I don't mind repeating it. It's important. Lessons need to be repeated. How many things that you're any good at did you have someone tell you how to do it one time, and then you went out and tried to do it one time, and you did it, and it required no improvement, no additional learning. You didn't have to revisit the matter. Never had to relook at the technique. You never had to reconsider, did I do that quite right or not? It doesn't happen. And yet, Christian people are prone to, in their religion, think about things that way. Well, I heard this once, and that's, I'm good. No, you're not. You heard this once, and you're no good. <laughs> and you need to hear it over and over again. And that's the way we all are, Right? I'm not beating you up. I include myself in that number. So for you, it is safe. It's good for you to hear it again. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Beware of the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I submit that that attitude I was just kind of rebuking everyone on is in some measure a confidence in the flesh, right? If you're saying, I got this, you know, I don't really need to hear this very regularly. 
You're kind of saying, I, I got it in my own strength. I can power through this. But Paul's saying the proper Christian attitude to have is to say, I have no confidence in the flesh. In fact, what we should be saying is, the things of my flesh are constantly inclining me in the wrong direction. I need regular instruction in the Word of God. I need to be a student and a disciple. I need to keep following the Lord every single day. And that's very important. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof might trust in the flesh, I more. In other words, I'll put my fleshly performance against anybody else. I mean, Paul was a very zealous religious person, and yet he had no confidence. That's the point he's making, right? It's like if I said, I'm going to be the heavyweight champion of the world because I think my flesh is capable of this thing. And then I'm standing there talking to Mike Tyson and he's saying, well, if anybody could make that brag, it would probably be me. It's kind of the thing he's saying, right? So he goes on to say, though he had this kind of zeal, he's giving his credentials here, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew, the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. In other words, I'm listing out all the stuff I do. And this is all the stuff that everybody says you have to do to be a good religious person. I did all of it. I did all of it, and it doesn't amount to anything. See what I'm saying? That's what Paul's saying. He's putting that record up against whatever we might say. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. In other words, that stuff was nothing. It doesn't mean anything compared to knowing what Christ has done. None of those things could have ever accomplished His eternal salvation, no matter how impressive they may have been. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Well, that's pretty plain language. He's saying all this religious practice and piety and, and all these things I did, it's dung. I'm looking at what Christ did. And it's perfect, and it's all I need. Everything else, totally worthless. To be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, and that's where most people want to be. I, I'm trying to build my own righteousness. I did this. I did a lot of volunteering. I tried to help this person, that person. Those are great things to do, but they can never acquire the righteousness that will earn your way into heaven. They simply cannot do it. Paul wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He wants to be righteous based on what Christ did. And he wants to know about it. And that's where he has confidence. And he's saying, I was so good at the religion game that if anyone could have felt good about it, it should have been me. I mean, I was doing everything right from the religious perspective. But I'm throwing that all aside because now I see what Christ did. I see that all that was worthless. It could never procure my salvation. And now I just want to be found in Christ and rest in the notion of what Christ has done. And he says it this way, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You see, when Paul's netting it all down, he comes down to this. The matter of the resurrection. Had Christ done all those other things, if He had taken on your sins, He had died on the cross, they put Him in a grave just like Isaiah said they were going to, and yet His days were not prolonged, 
he didn't come out of that grave, none of that would have mattered. That's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. It doesn't matter. Without the resurrection, none of that matters. The resurrection is the thing that declares that all of this was done by the Son of God. It was a perfect work that only He could do. And he describes it as, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. If you believe these things today, you have in some sense known the power of His resurrection because it is the same mighty power of God that pulled Christ out of the grave that makes it so that you're able to believe. You've been risen with Him in that sense. What a remarkable testimony. You've come to know that in that sense. He is a successful Savior. That's going to happen for each and every one of His children. So if you believe this, you are risen by that exact same power. And that's a remarkable testimony. The Bible's testimony, for those of you who believe this, is that you are to submit your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I give you the opportunity to do that. Join the church by letter of baptism. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.